really is an amazing country that we live in. We, uh, our, our life group had, uh, we were going skating last night. There, there've got to be few places in the world where an outdoor skating uh, place is shut down because it's too cold. Most places you go, it'd be too warm, the things turn into puddles, can't uh, sustain the ice. But uh, alas, this is, this is uh, Canada, wonderful place. Uh, the Bible talks a lot about spiritual blindness. Uh, but Pierre-Paul Thomas was a man who experienced uh, physical blindness. Uh, he grew up in Montreal in the uh, 1940s. And as a boy growing up in Montreal in the 1940s, he wanted to do what every boy in Montreal in the 1940s wanted to do, which was play hockey. Couldn't play hockey. Uh, he, he could only experience and see the, the world around him through, uh, as he imagined it, through uh, what other people would describe to him uh, about uh, all that was around us. Uh, but he did l- learn to, uh, to function very capably. Uh, he learned to walk with a, uh, a cane to avoid obstacles. Even still, though, at the age of 66, he had a, quite a terrible fall. Uh, he fell down the steps of his apartment uh, stair- stairwell and uh, shattered the bones in his face. I, I can only imagine what had gone through his mind at that time, thinking, now this, right? And uh, the, the, uh, the difficulties that ensued. There was great swelling around his eyes. There were broken bones. He had surgery. And months later, he was examined by uh, uh, quite an accomplished plastic surgeon who had, to, had a consultation with regard to some, uh, uh, some damage that had been done to his uh, scalp, and the plastic surgeon was going to help repair that. Quite casually, in the midst of the consultation for the repair of his scalp, scalp the surgeon said, should we take care of your vision while we're at it too? And Pierre-Paul Thomas was completely stunned, not knowing, what is this man talking about? Uh, Pierre-Paul Thomas was blind, but it came from a couple of factors. Uh, From a very young, from, from birth, he had a condition called nystagmus. And that had affected his vision and did cause problems for him. But what actually made him legally blind was severe cataracts on his eyes. Growing up in a family of nine, with uh, nine brothers and sisters in a small town, remote area of Quebec, before universal health care, you can't see, you can't see. And his parents assumed, he assumed, there's nothing you can do about blindness. And it wasn't until terrible fall at the age of 66, casual question, what seemed like, yeah, should we, should we do this? And uh, he was able to see for the very first time in his life. When I think of what the Bible says about spiritual blindness, I think of Pierre Paul Thomas. Because I think that many of us go through our lives, we're kind of able to function. We're we're able to avoid many of the, the big obstacles in our life. We, we get by, we get around. 
And yet the Bible says we do so without seeing the way we were really created to see. And this morning's passage talks, I believe, about that spiritual blindness and how God helps us to see, how God can help us to deal with uh, some of the issues in our life that keep us from uh, seeing. And because we're in this topic, I'm going to ask you to think about some of the decisions that maybe are before you this morning, Um, maybe some of the decisions that you've been thinking about in recent weeks, Um, maybe some of the decisions that just, they keep coming up, and you've kind of just, you've just been making the decisions, and, and you've been going through the process, but I want you to think about those decisions in light of what God's Word teaches this morning about spiritual blindness and the vision that God would seek to give us. If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn with me. We have been uh, studying the life of Abraham in the book of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible. And this morning, I'm going to be reading from Genesis chapter 13, uh, verses 1 to 18. So if 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 you're with me, Genesis 13, verses 1 to 18. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had and lot with him, into the Negev. Now, Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we're kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you. Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I'll go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I'll go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered, everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I'll make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. This is the word of God. Now, before we get into what it means to live by faith, we need to understand what it means to 
see our lives without that faith. And Lot is helpful here. He helps us to, helps us to understand the opposite of where we want to head in our understanding of what God wants for us in this area. He teaches us that sight without faith leads us into darkness. If we, if we don't engage our faith, if we just look at our lives and the decisions of our lives based on what we can see, on what we've experienced, on what feels right, on what our gut or experience would dictate, we will find ourselves having made decisions that we will regret. Sight without faith leads you into darkness. Now, last time we saw how Abraham was faced with a a famine. He was in the southern part of Canaan. He was in the Negev. And there, famine came, and he heads to Egypt. In a moment of compromise, he, he gives in. Uh, he's, he's faced difficulties. He's brought trouble on himself in, in uh, Egypt. But now he's returned. And he returns with riches. He returns with silver, gold, lots of uh, possessions, but also huge flocks, huge herds of livestock. So much so that he doesn't, uh, it does, there isn't enough pasture land for both him and for Lot. It's interesting because often we think, if I only got all the stuff that I wanted, surely my life would be better. Surely I wouldn't have as many problems then. But we learn from Abraham and Lot here that you can get all the stuff and it doesn't necessarily reduce our problems. It can actually increase our problems. So that's what they're dealing with here. And they've gotten to the point where Lot's herdsmen and Abraham's herdsmen are arguing with each other. Conflict all the time because they just don't have enough uh, space to, to live. Lot's uncle, Abraham, at this point, generously offers his nephew his pick of the land. Take whatever you want. In verse 10, the Bible records Lot's response. And this will be a huge, one of those life-altering decisions. It will affect Lot. It will affect his family, his descendants. He's faced with a massive decision of what direction am I going to go in life? And I want you to see how he makes that decision. It says in verse 10, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere. What you want to do here is picture the two of them. They're standing on a, uh, on a mountainous area between Bethel and Ai. They are about 1,000 a, uh, a meters above sea level, so they have this huge panorama in front of them. They can see most of the, of, uh, the land of Israel, and they can see for miles. What Lot does is he looks at, looks at his prospects in front of him. And he sees the Jordan Valley, valley, particularly the southern end uh, around the, uh, at the the southern tip of the Dead Sea. And it's well watered. The vegetation is lush because it's irrigated by uh, by the Dead Sea in in that location. At this point, the decision seems like a no brainer. Because Lot has just, in the previous chapter, the, the problem that they came out of was famine. They, know what, they, they, they knew what it was like to live with the harsh conditions of 
being at the mercy of waiting for rain. And they also knew what a refuge it can be when you are near a natural water source like they had experienced with the Nile. So he looks at this decision. The, the Jordan Valley looks so lush, so well watered, that it seems like a secure place, an obvious choice. It's so obvious, he doesn't even need to pray about it. This is such a, a, an, an easy decision. He's not pausing or thinking about it. It's, it, it's what we call a no-brainer. It's one of those decisions that we just think, boy, this is obvious. I know exactly what to do here. And we see that it was an obvious decision. It was a clear decision. It was a decision that was informed by his background, his experience. And it was also a terrible decision. It was, a t- it was a decision that would bring loss and heartache and pain to him and to his family and to those who would follow. Sight without faith leads you into darkness. Now, Lot made this decision based on what he could see. It's, it says that he lifted up his eyes to the Jordan Valley. Problem was, he didn't lift up his eyes to the Lord. Didn't include God in the decision. There's no record of him praying. There's no record of him thinking about the promises that God had made in directly leading him, just in the previous chapter, leading Abraham and Lot with him into the land of Canaan, into a place of promise and blessing. No record of him thinking about any of those things. There's no hint, actually, that he thought of anyone but himself in this decision. Didn't think of his uncle, didn't think of God. He doesn't seem concerned, really. Verse 11 says, So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. He doesn't seem concerned that his uncle really should have the first pick. His uncle is he's older, and he's, he's higher in, in, in rank and status. He, 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 should, he should take the... There's no word from Lot of... of in response to this generous offer, no, 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 uncle, really, you're the one that should, should have the first pick. I'll, I'll, I'll take, this, you know, I'll, I'll take what, what's left over. You shouldn't put that, uh, give that uh, decision to me. He doesn't really seem concerned where his uncle ends up, period. And that should be a problem if you remember the last chapter because in the last chapter we learned that God had made some promises to bless Abraham. And not just to bless Abraham, but through Abraham, blessings would come to all the families of the earth. Lot doesn't seem to be thinking about that right now, and so he's turned his back. He just has his eyes focused on this well-watered portion of the southern Jordan Valley, and whatever happens to Abraham and his promises and the God of Abraham— that doesn't seem to be figuring in very much into his decision at all. A decision, ultimately, that is all about me, very little about God, and with very little concern for other people, often ends very badly. Sight without faith leads you into darkness. Now, the other thing about decisions that we make without faith is that they often ignore temptation. And as you read this passage and the decision that Lot made, 
makes, yellow flags should be, should be going off at a number of points in the text. So for instance, in verse 10, it says, he saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord. It was like the garden of Eden. And as soon as you read that, if you've read what happened in the garden of Eden, you're thinking, yeah, it kind of looks like the garden of Eden. And I'll bet there's a serpent hanging out somewhere. Like, I'll, I'll bet there's some temptation waiting for you there. Doesn't seem to be thinking about that. He mentions that it's like, uh, like Egypt. Uh, it, it, uh, in, in, verse, uh, uh, in that same verse, in verse 10, there's, there's a, a note about it looking like the land of Egypt. And Egypt should have reminded him, yeah, that was that place where we just compromised and things didn't go very well for us there. All of these little hints that there should be something to be concerned about. In verse 10, there's a note for the reader because an Israelite hearing this story, remember this is Moses telling the story of Abraham to the people of Israel. As he told the story, they'd be confused because he's just told them that Lot and Abraham are, st- st- uh, are looking out from, the, from this high area between Bethel and Ai, and they're looking out and they can see the land, and Lot is salivating over what a, a lush vegetation that they see around the southern Jordan Valley. But the Israelites had seen the southern Jordan Valley a little, um, a few hundred years later, and when they saw it, it sure didn't look all that lush, it sure didn't seem uh, like a, uh, a prime piece of real estate the way Lot seems to be seeing it today. And the reason for that was that judgment had come upon the land. In verse uh, 10, it, it, it gives us that information because there had been a, a judgment that had come upon Lot, uh, uh, on uh, uh, the area where Lot was living in Sodom and Gomorrah, and that judgment brought changes to uh, the fertility of the land and, and uh, the, the people would have been familiar with that. If we're just going by sight, there's little that we can really see. There's, we're not thinking about temptation. We're not thinking about the spiritual dimension. We're not thinking about God and his priorities. We're not remembering his promises and the way that he's directed us. Sight without faith will lead you into darkness. And there's something else that I want you to see here. Because Lot is headed near Sodom. We learn in verse 13 that the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Now, when you and I call someone great, like if you say, wow, you're really great at uh, soccer, like you're saying, you're really good at that. You must have, been, you must have put in a lot of practice because you really excel. You're an overachiever in soccer. If you're great at sinning, it, it's a, it's a, and, and if that is kind of the defining mark of that, of, of that land, you're saying like, these people really knock it out of the park when it comes to sinning. They've, they're very creative. Uh, they've got some new ideas when it comes to sin. They, they, they seem to practice a lot. They've got a lot of experience in it. They just seem to do sin better than most people. So it's a mark here that these weren't just mediocre, average sinners, but this was kind of a thing for them. They, they had special skills and gifts in this area. Doesn't seem to be a problem. Doesn't seem to be on the radar for, Abraham, uh, for Lot because, again, 
he is making this decision on his own, based on what he can see, without God in the picture, without God's perspective on things. But in verse 12, Lot moves his tent as far as Sodom. It's an interesting way the text will describe the actual geography here. He, his tent comes a, as far as Sodom. That means he's still living in a tent. He's still a nomad. He's still living outside of the town itself, but he's within commuting distance. If he wants to get into that place where there are the great sinners are, he can get there, but he can still keep a safe distance. He feels fairly safe, fairly secure there. Enjoy the best of both worlds. Unfortunately, by chapter 14, it says in verse 12 that now he's dwelling in Sodom. So that commute into town was becoming a little bit of a bother. Uh, the, 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 the great sin that was going on in Sodom, it seemed bad at first, but over time he got used to it. And it just became more comfortable. Hey, I'll set up my home right in town. I can probably handle this. It won't be so bad. And, and I think many of, many of us find ourselves in facing those kinds of temptations and we, we downplay the danger, downplay the, the threat of it. Interestingly, by chapter 19, we see Lot, now he's sitting in the gate of the city. That's where the city officials uh, sat. That's where they conducted business. At that point, you're, you're, you're asking yourself, what does it take to become the mayor of a town that is great at sinning? Like, uh, 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 to become the, the head of a, of a city that is known to be uh, kind of overachieving in this whole area of rebelling against God. And you just see that progression in Lot's life. First, I'll just be in commuting distance. I, I can handle this. Then I think I can move into the town. Then before you, before you know it, you are thriving in the land of sin. You are, uh, are, are chief among those who uh, are known for their rebellion against God. The challenge is that some of us here in this room this morning will walk this exact path that Lot did. Some here will walk into a decision. It's a big decision. You know it's a big decision, but it's just such an obvious decision. You don't even need to pray about it. You don't even need to hear what God has to say about this decision because you got it all figured out. You can kind of see the. It's it just so so clear, just so obvious what to do. And you will walk into that situation blindly, find yourself in a situation that now that you're in it, you recognize maybe this wasn't such a good idea after all. And yet you convince yourself, I don't need to completely back out of it. I can kind of, I can kind of just keep my distance a little bit. I can probably handle it. Probably wouldn't be a problem. And then you become more comfortable with that. You find yourself in the midst of it. And then before you know it, you're thriving in a setting that should have made you deeply troubled, deeply uncomfortable. If God was in control, if, 
You were seeing your situation in your life through his eyes and everything would be quite different. This passage is a warning for us before it happens, before we find ourselves in that situation, and even before we are confronted with that, with that decision that as long as the eyes are closed and spiritually we are not engaged, we just won't see it, won't see it for what it is. Sight without faith will lead you down a path of darkness every time. The good news is that you don't have to be a casualty. The good news is you don't have to end up there. And, and so uh, we get some, some help here from the rest of the passage. Abraham shows us how sight, when it is guided by faith, can lead us into light. When we can think about and understand our decisions in light of who God is, in light of how God has revealed himself in his word, and see through his eyes we have new understanding, new resources and ammunition to take into our decisions and to pursue them with his help. Sight guided by faith leads us into light. Now, I don't know if you've been ever in a situation where there's been overcrowding like Abraham and Lot faced. Um, maybe you were stuck in traffic this week and you were feeling the, the conflict and the tension and, and wanting to argue like uh, Lot and Abraham's herdsmen did in this passage. I read this and I just think of my, my apartment in Japan. So there were five of us sharing one toilet, one sink, and one bath and shower and two of those five were teenagers, and, and like when there would be a, a curling iron going and some other stuff, and I need to get into that shower, and we were kind of all in the same space, I'm pretty sure that almost, no, never did it come out of my mouth, let there be no strife between you and me, for we are kinsmen. <laughs> like I just, I didn't say that, okay? And I didn't think that. That just, that doesn't come naturally. That doesn't just come out of your mouth, Right? And yet that is, that's Abraham's lead in line in, this, in the midst of this conflict. Let there be no strife between us. We're brothers. We're, we're, we're kinsmen. He wasn't primarily motivated by getting the best land. He wasn't primarily motivated by protecting himself from a famine, even though he's just experienced one. He's not primarily thinking about himself, frankly. It seems to me that what's motivated him is relationship. What seems to be high in his mind is, is peace and demonstrating love to this one whom God has put into his care. Faith decisions are, are rooted in that kind of love. Now, at this point, there was a very obvious cultural solution to the problem. If you want a no-brainer, Abraham had a no-brainer. And here's what it was. You pull rank on the little guy. You choose the piece of land that you want for yourself, and you tell him to move on. If he'd have done that, there wouldn't have been an, a person anywhere in the ancient Near East that would have faulted him for it. Totally acceptable, the, the obvious cultural solution. He's got the status. He's got the rank. God has been directing him. Lot can 
push on and move out. And yet he doesn't take the cultural solution. He doesn't take the obvious solution. Instead, in verse 9, he says, He's not the whole land before you. Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I'll go to the right. If you take the right hand, then I'll go to the left. It's a generous solution. It's a gracious solution. It's a countercultural solution. And what I want you to see here, it's a kind of solution that you will only ever see through eyes of faith. You just don't come up with this stuff on your own. Listen to what Alan Ross says of Abraham at this point. He says, he had learned that it was not by his own plan or power that he would come into his possession, not by jealously guarding what he thought was his, God would give it to him, even if he gave it away a hundred times. He says, Abram, therefore, had the freedom to act generously, righteously, and mercifully in his resolving the dispute. It was a recognition of who God was, what God had promised him, how God was leading him, that enabled him to come at the decision from a totally different perspective. God gave him eyes to see, helped him to see his situation in a completely different light. When you come to the place in your life where you recognize that God is good, that his plan for you is good, and that you can trust him to do good, it then frees you up from being God in your life. It frees you up to stop trying to worry and control and fix and manipulate your surroundings and just rest and trust in God and whatever it is he wants you to do. And that's exactly what we see with Abraham. By faith, he's walked into God's blessings. In verse 4, God appears to him and says, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. All the land you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. In faith, Abraham had the vision to say, I can give away this land. I can give, it, give away this land for the sake of love, for the sake of peace, for the sake of grace and generosity. And having done that, God is pleased to give it right back to him. Interestingly, Lot, there's deliberate use in the language is used here. Lot chose and he took. And what Lot chose and took was eventually taken from him when judgment came on Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham doesn't, doesn't describe Abraham as choosing and taking. Instead, we see that Abraham waited and received. And although, for a time, it looked like Lot was living the high life. Like he chose and he took and he got a better end of the bargain, right? He was living well. He was living in the land of luxury and Abraham was stuck waiting and all he had to show for it was his promises. And yet, Lot's land will be taken from him and he will see it in judgment. And Abraham, while he will have to wait where there will have to be trusting in God and his promises. And what are you doing now, Lord? In the midst of that, he will enjoy the fruit of a secure and indeed internal inheritance. Proverbs 10.22 says this, 
The blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. We look at our lives and we say, I can see what I need to do here. I just, I'm just going to choose it and I'm going to take it for myself. But God's the only one who can bless you without that blessing ruining you. And you just take and choose and get it for yourself. I don't care what God thinks. That is not something that is going to end in your blessing. But the blessing that we wait upon the Lord for is something that we can truly enjoy and be secure in. So we've seen the danger of making decisions just based on what we, what we can see. And, and as you see that the, the t- decision Abraham's making, none of you, I'll bet, are looking at that and saying, boy, I don't, I don't want to make decisions that honor God. I don't want to do things that are loving and generous and gracious. It's not a question of whether you'd want to do it. The question is, how on earth do do we get to that point? Because just naturally, we're ending up the place that Lot ended up. Naturally, we're just making the decisions that come come to us, the the no-brainers, the things that seem obvious. How is it that you can see? See your life the way God sees it. See your decisions the way God sees them. And that's where the text leads us next. What we learn from the passage is that the faith to see comes through worshiping God, our vision. It it comes with pausing long enough before God and seeing him for who he is, being informed by him in order that when we come back to our decision, it is with that vision of his glory his greatness, his wisdom, his priorities, and his values. The faith to see comes through worshiping God, our vision. Some of you may have concluded, and particularly if you're just joining us from, from this passage, maybe you just think, boy, Abraham really like, knocked it out of the park here with this decision. He must just be really good at decisions. He must just be really like a faithful guy, and he's always, like, can he see something? He's just always thinking of the Lord, always thinking about what's right, and that's just amazing. I I just wish I was like Abraham. And if you thought this came naturally to Abraham, then you really should have been here last week. Um, You really, because none of this comes naturally to Abraham. Last week we saw that Abraham was a guy, when he found himself in Egypt, his wife ended up in Pharaoh's harem because he tried to pass her off as his sister. So this is not a guy for whom, like, spiritual, faith-filled decisions just came naturally to him. But the text does tell us how someone for whom it doesn't come even naturally, how someone can make decisions that, that do honor God and do glorify him, and, and, and you can have eyes to see. The text actually shows you very clearly, so that we don't miss it, how we actually do that. First, it deals with how he responded to his failure. We said that Abraham found himself in failure in Egypt. And what we see in this passage, the first thing that he does to get his spiritual vision back is to retrace his steps. 
When you find yourself and you've done something really stupid and we all make a lot of dumb decisions, the place where you go is back to where things fell off the rail. And so for, for, for Abraham, what that means is getting out of Egypt, heading back to southern Canaan, and he, he starts with the Negev. Then he, he's not content to go to, to just stay there, although that's where, he, that's where he starts. He then leaves there, having, having got to the Negev in verse 1. In verse 3, he then heads to Bethel. That was the place where he built an altar to the Lord. That's where he called on the name of the Lord. That's where his relationship with the Lord was really on track. That's where he was praising God and hearing his voice and feeling his security. Retraced his steps. It's like Revelation 2.5 says, Remember therefore where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. It's doing a spiritual moral 180 and retracing your steps. You find yourself in a mess. You've done something stupid. You've made a, a dumb decision that's dishonored God. You recognize it. You turn around and you walk in the other direction. And that's the first thing that, that, that Abraham did here. And, it, and it's a message to us. If you want to see clearly, you need to start with repentance and faith. You, you return to the place of God's presence. At that point, he begins to worship. It says that he calls upon the name of the Lord. That's why he went back to Bethel. That's where he went back to that altar. He wanted to call upon the name of the Lord. He wanted to seek his face in worship. He wanted to declare God's goodness and praise. Some of you hear the word worship and you think, oh yeah, I know what that thing is. It's when we sing one of those songs by Chris Tomlin or Bill Gaither or one of the other um, hymn writers. That's what worship is. That's a small part of what worship is. What worship is is when we pause and we reflect on how good God is, how great God is, we declare to him how precious he is to us. That's, that's something that we do, uh, you can do at anywhere. You don't need the music for it. Uh, you and God and your words expressing to him your love, expressing to him how great that you know it, him to be. We actually offer free workshops on this at the church. Uh, every Wednesday night, we call them prayer meeting. Uh, it's a time where we come together as a congregation to encourage each other, to help each other learn what it means to worship and call on the name of the Lord. It's also why, if you are getting our emails, every Wednesday night, we get a you'll, you'll get a prayer guide that will teach you and train you in worshiping the Lord will guide you through a biblical prayer from the scriptures and just looking for ways that we can encourage each other in worshiping the Lord because it's in worship, as we are meditating on who God is and how great God is, with our Bibles open, allowing him to speak, that he changes us. That's where he opens our eyes and helps us to see our lives through his eyes with his vision, with his direction. Chapter 13, deliberately structured with Abraham, worshiping God at the beginning, verse 4, worshiping God at the end at an, and building another altar for worship after the conflict in verse 18. 
And the message is, if you begin and you end in worship, your eyes are open and you are able to see your life through his eyes. He changes you. He gives us, uh, he makes us a little bit more like him, a little bit less like us. When you think of these two men on the mountaintop, for me, they remind me of another scene. These two men are standing on a mountaintop overlooking all, all the world before them. They're, they're seeing the promised land before them. But it reminds me of another scene where Jesus was uh, in a very similar situation. It was actually before he started his ministry, Satan came to tempt him. And what Satan did in one of those tests was to take him up onto a mountaintop, high enough that he'd be able to see for a long distance, see the kingdoms of the world. And Satan said, they're all yours. Take whatever you want. All you have to do is worship me. And Jesus rejected the temptation, passed on the land that was said before him, and said, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. He recognized that the, he could have all the things that his eyes could see, and yet they would not bring blessing, they would not bring comfort, they would not bring security. He could have taken what he wanted, he could have enjoyed the pleasures the world had to offer, but he passed on them for our sake. He passed on them in order to provide for us an inheritance that neither you nor I deserve. He gave up what he could have enjoyed for us, out of love for us. None of us are naturally generous. None of us are naturally patient. None of us are naturally loving to the point that we give to others and think of others before we think of ourselves. Those things don't come to us naturally. And on our own, we can't see spiritual realities. On our own, our eyes are closed to the sin, the temptation, the, the dangers that are in front of us. But when we pause in worship, God opens up our eyes. When we take time in our day, preferably at the beginning of your day, to open God's word and allow God's word to lead you into worship, expressing your love to him, expressing who he is and all that he means to you, then he makes us a little bit more like himself. And he does that by changing the way that we see our lives, the way we see our decisions. He opens our eyes from the spiritual blindness to be able to see what's really going on and to see our world through his eyes. Through worship, God conforms us to his image. Through worship, he helps us to see life as he sees it. And so I want to urge you to look to him in worship. Open your day in worship and let him lead you into promise and lead you into blessing. Let's look to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask you for eyes of faith to see as you see. Because we make a lot of dumb choices. And too often we don't consider you at all. 
Help us to slow down. Help us to stop making decisions on autopilot. Would you teach us to worship? Would you help us to pause at the beginning of our day, open your word, and express to you what an amazing God you are? Would you shape our minds and our thinking? And thank you for Jesus. He's not just our example in this, and and he is. But he's not just that. He's the one who gave up his privileges so that we might enjoy them. Thank you for the inheritance that we can enjoy through faith in him. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.